Hello and welcome to the VentureForth Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Mahavudivani. We'll be chatting with some of the most interesting founders, startups, and VCs about the experiences that led them to where they are today, what they're currently working on, as well as the journey ahead of them. Today we are with Vincent Cardillo, who was most recently the co-founder and CTO of Bento, a food delivery startup offering high-quality Asian cuisine on demand. Most of us were introduced to Vincent on Season 3, Episode 6 of Gimlet Media's popular startup podcast, and if you haven't heard it yet, you should definitely check it out. I think it was really a rare and intimate look into the life and times of a startup. And with that, I'd like to welcome my good friend Vincent to the inaugural episode of the Venture Forth podcast. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me on the show. Can you tell us a little bit about Bento and how you met your co-founder, Jason DeMont? Sure. So uh, we met on a website called Founder Dating uh, back in the middle of 2014. And as the name implies, you go on lots of dates with lots of potential co-founders. And I met Jason and kept in touch with him over... Uh, over a few months, and we had some some back and forth, and uh, ultimately he was the the most uh, buttoned up, I think, the most put together, you know, potential CEO that I had met. Um, given my limited comparison, obviously on this, but compared to everyone else that I had met, you know, so we decided to to go into business together to get business business married off of founder dating. So most people probably don't know this, but Vincent and I actually met on founder dating as well. So it's a pretty effective website for meeting really interesting people. So I really love the startup podcasts, but Bento's story was particularly interesting for me because I grew up and spent over 10 years in the family restaurant business. Did you have any experience in the industry before diving in? And how did the unit economics end up the way that they did? I did not have a lot of experience. I guess the only the only real experience I would say I had was um, working in a restaurant when I was a kid uh, as a as a busser, a host, and washing dishes. You know, that said, uh, I'd always kind of, I've always wanted to, to um, you know, experience running a restaurant um, because of the, the passion that I had for food in general. Yeah, the unit economics, um, let me think how to answer that in a, in a succinct way. Um, I think a couple things happened. Um, the first was that we, we received our second large seed round because of the growth that we had had and how quickly we had achieved that growth. So people obviously liked our, they liked our products. You know, they were hungry for our product. I guess the implied wisdom was you should focus on that customer growth and worry about the more detailed aspects of the business later. Um, that being how to make money with the business. In hindsight, I think that that's fundamentally not a sound idea. You need to have a general concept. You need to have a plan for how to make money because otherwise it doesn't matter how many customers you have. You're just going to lose money faster. I think that's kind of kind of the summary of it. And we, you know, again, we were focusing on growth because that's what you know what we thought was important to to keep the business running in the long term. Also, maybe what prevailing wisdom, at least in the echo chamber of Silicon Valley, is, is just concentrate on growth and maybe spend whatever you need to to get that growth until you can get to a positive unit economics. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, ultimately, it's it's us, right? We're the ones responsible for for running the business. But but you're right. I think echo chamber is a good um, is a good word. You know, we you know us and many other businesses, I think, aren't were and are encouraged by that that wisdom of um, grow now and worry about business later. Um, and I think that's finally starting to to come to an end. So I think that's really, really popular advice, especially for food delivery businesses, too. I mean, we've seen some high-profile failures recently. At the point when you joined Bento, there was already a, quite a few food delivery businesses in the market. How did you decide to take the leap with Bento? You mentioned that Jason was the most buttoned-up founder that you met, but food delivery is also a crowded space. It is, yeah. And, and you're right. I mean, going back to, to what you said um I think you're right. With food in general, it, I think that focusing on the margins uh, in particular with this industry are important. Um, you know, I think with other industries, that wisdom is probably correct where you can worry about, you know, with pure software, you can worry about uh, how to make money with it later because just having users using the product is really important. Uh, but you're right. I think with food, you do need to worry about how to make money with it up front. Yeah, so I have a you know a big passion for for food, and I have a pretty big interest in the industrial food industry. Uh, there are some kind of scary statistics, like forty percent of the food uh, that we produce is wasted, and that's through you know just overproduction, supply chain inefficiencies, all sorts of, of things like that. I think it's I think it's John Oliver has a pretty good bit on that. If if you're interested in ever watching that, it just Really sad, actually. Um, and then you look at industries like, let's just take chicken, and you look at stuff, you know, you look at labels like uh, free range. The definition of free range is pretty pathetic. Uh, you know, they can be cooped up in an area outside that is smaller than the area that they have inside, and they're not actually able to, to move around. And that's considered free range. They, or they can be put outside, you know, for the last 30 or thirty or 20% of their life, and that's somehow considered you know, free range. Or grass-fed beef. You know, if you if you see the word grass fed beef, you think, oh, it must be. You picture this cow that's roaming around the pasture, but it's then it's not. They're just cooped up the same way, and they're just fed grass instead of corn, so that um, you can say that it's grass fed beef. So the food, you know, the food industry, the the, the industrial food industry in general, I think, um, has a lot of a lot of work to be done, a lot of improvement to be made, and it's just starting to come to light. There's some some movement. I think Huff posted a piece on on food waste, um, and there's some other articles that have been circulating on this particular topic. But that was really what the interest that I had, and I think there are two ways that you can fix a problem like this of this scale. You can do it in Washington with lots of lobbying, um, or you can do it at the corporate scale where you become a large enough company that you can influence your supply chain and, and your you know, and your vendors. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be something that you ask your customers to do. It's just an internal ethos that guides the company, kind of like Chipotle. Um, I would liken it to a lot of what Chipotle does. So that was the goal. Uh, that was like the end game for me personally was to have, you know, a company that, a food company that gets that became large enough that has this this uh, really positive internal ethos and can start to bring to light some of these issues and you know do something something good for those issues. So when you launched, that was part of your I guess mission. Did customers respond to that? No, I mean in the beginning it was just it, it wasn't something that we ever put forward, and I don't think we ever really did a good job of that. We had you know internally we did a lot of work on our suppliers. And where we sourced our food from and having really quality ingredients. Um, and I think I pushed a lot of that, much to the 
the the chagrin of my um, my partners at times. But but no, I mean, if we had, um, it was hard too, especially I think with this cuisine where you have certain sauces and certain ingredients, uh, and it's hard to make those, and it's also hard to buy them in a way that they don't have a bunch of like high fructose corn syrup in them or a bunch of artificial ingredients. So it was hard for us to say uh, 100% this or 100% that, but we you know we would always say no MSG added, um, all natural. So we did take a lot of a lot of pride in in the food but there may have you know there was always like i don't know some one ingredient here or there that was just so difficult to source properly uh, and now now like as we progressed you know it took six or eight months to get to that point but we uh we have really really high quality uh, ingredients that we've taken a long time to source what was your most favorite meal that you served i think it would i would say the seared salmon tataki. <laughs> uh, that was, um, and it was expensive, you know, it's expensive and Jason always used to joke, this is VC subsidized salmon, which was, which was true. And so then we, we downgraded that and then we finally found a middle of the road, uh, really high quality sustainable salmon that was from Washington, uh, state, S- sustainably raised is the term, which means it's, it's better than farmed, um, and it's actually better than wild caught because it's, it's grown in a sustainable way. And, and, and the taste on that is, is fantastic. When times were hard, did you or Jason ever cook for Bento or drive even? I drove a few times to test the technology to have the driver experience. I don't. I definitely didn't cook in the beginning. Uh, there was enough other things for me to be doing. Later, when we moved kitchens and had a larger kitchen that had a little little office in it uh, where we could work, I would be in the kitchen a little bit, yeah, helping out, especially in the morning when we had these large high volume catering orders and just needed needed more hands chopping or filling pods or, or whatnot. When I first visited Bento's kitchens, you showed me some really interesting things. It looked like that you had invented some insulated bag technology because you had hot items and cold items and stuff like that. Uh, what went into the development of that? Oh yeah, that, that brings me back. Yeah, so it, it turns out, yeah, keeping food cold in a car is really easy. Keeping food hot was a lot harder. We... I wouldn't say we invented the bag technology, but we, we kind of came up with a way to keep the food hot. Uh, so the problem that we had, especially with our, with our pod system where we would, you know, assemble the pods on site, that's how you were, you were able to do these custom orders so quickly. So the pods would be in this, in this kind of shelf system, if you would imagine, like maybe, maybe the way like we used to receive mail, a bunch of small, small shelves kind of all stacked up in like five by five columns. And the pods would be sitting in that thing in this metal shelf. And all of that was just difficult to keep hot because there was so much volume there. So the, the, you know, obviously like this is a solved problem. There are hot bags that you put in your car and you connect to a cigarette lighter, but they're really only designed to hold a couple of meals, a couple of small items. There's not a lot of mass there that needs to get heated. Well, so first we started using multiple heating elements in these bags and we thought that was a great idea until the fuses in people's cars would blow because they are drawing too much current. Uh, and that happened a bunch of times. So we stopped doing that, obviously, and uh, we came up with the idea to have uh, just really simple deep cycle DC uh, marine batteries, 12 amp DC batteries in uh, in these cars. Uh, so then wired to those batteries, we had an electrician connect um, cigarette socket lighters uh, with, you know, backed by fuses and all that. So we would then just connect three or four heating elements into these batteries. But now you had like 60 pound batteries that you were loading in and out of the driver's cars, but it worked. I mean, it worked for quite a while. 
for as long as we were doing hot food delivery. And then towards the end, we were talking to a thermal engineer, I think worked at Apple, and she came up with this idea. So you have cold packs, right, where you basically put cold, you know, you, you put your cold energy, in a sense, into, um, into the ice, and it's stored. Well, you should be able to do the same thing with heat. And so there's this uh, wax that you would basically put into an oven. And it would just, you know, absorb all the energy, and then you would just plop that into your bag, and it would emit heat, and you do a couple of those. Um, and they were super light. We never, you know, really got to to needing that um, because of the way our business changed. But that would have been the next step. I thought I was kind of excited to see that. That was pretty cool. Like we were playing with fans, like circulating air around, like all these different little tests. Um, it was kind of fun. So there's nothing off the shelf that you could just buy and, and use. I mean, it sounds like developing your own, or at least hacking to get together your own technology would be pretty expensive. We, I mean, we looked into custom manufacturing stuff. It was just cost prohibitive. Uh, we looked at, yeah, we, we looked at a couple different solutions. So yeah, it was kind of like hacking together a prototype and then, and then maybe having it manufactured at some point, you know, if the business kept going. Um, but yeah, it's funny. I mean, there's no real need for this problem. Most, most food, you know, most of these containers, you're going from, let's say, like Pizza Hut to someone's house. So they just, they don't even need, you know, they don't need to keep the food hot that long. You don't need to keep it up to code, right? It's, it's different, different kind of business. Interesting. Uh, I'd like to kind of move on to uh, talking about your, your startup podcast experience. I think uh, probably a lot of people, especially founders, are interested in learning about how you got connected with the startup podcast and, and Lisa Chow and what your experience was like. Yeah, so that was mostly Jason who uh, facilitated that. He, I think he just sent them an email on a whim and said something like, you know, hey, we're a, we're a small startup. We have uh, this much money left in the bank. We have, you know, I don't know, six months of runway left. It's difficult. Do you want to come talk to us? Uh, and they said yes. I, you know, admittedly, I'm not going to make, you know, make no reservations about saying I was, I was pretty skeptical about it. I'd never done anything like that. You know, I wasn't really sure what it was going to be be like or are they going to follow us around with, with microphones and cameras um, but it turns out no we were just meant to record important conversations that Jason and I would have and it, it was actually kind of cool um, it was it felt like a little bit of therapy you know we would we would be having a, a fairly serious conversation and then we would start recording it uh, Molly did a really great job uh, editing podcast and she came on site uh, twice actually um, to, to meet with us and record us in person. And they were, you know, they were super nice and yeah, incredibly, incredibly professional. What was the effect on the business? Well, you mean the volume? Yeah. I mean, you know, you have the product hunt effect and tech crunch bump and, you know, what, what is the startup podcast influence on the business? If, if we were still running, uh, B2C, I, I think, think I'm trying to remember so I think we we had definitely closed on demand at that point when it came out I can't remember if we had also closed uh, order had the last part of the B2C business but I, I can't say I don't think it had any major long-term effect uh, we did get you know a lot of nice a lot of nice feedback from it though yeah were there any common questions or feedback from friends family the community about your bento experience as revealed on the podcast yeah, I mean, so I kind of expected a lot of, I think as you do, I kind of expected a lot of negative uh, of feedback. And, you know, and actually before I even started the podcast, they gave us some references to talk to some other people that had done this similar thing with them. And uh, the, the woman that I spoke with said, yeah, you know, we expected to get 
all this terrible feedback. You know, how could you be, you know, for example, like, how could you be so dumb? Of course, you're running your business like a, like an idiot. And I kind of expected the same, the same thing, but we got uh, a lot of positive, you know, supportive feedback that just basically boils down to, you know, running any kind of business is, is difficult, uh, especially one that you don't have subject matter expertise in. Um, it's, it's hard and then it's 10 times harder than you, you could imagine that it, uh, that it was going to be. Um, so that, I mean, that was nice. It was nice to get that kind of feedback. I remember you mentioning the importance of subject matter experts in, in running the business. I think, you know, if you go back far enough, you had started the business with Martin from Top Chef fame. Mm-hmm. Did he have any input on the operational aspects of the business or even from your investors? So the investors, that's the easy answer. Uh, no, I mean, no one, we, we didn't have any, any investor that really knew the restaurant business per se. And because it was a seed round, or because it come from, came from a seed fund, you know, we had, I don't know, hundreds of, of investors. Mateen, you know, Mateen's expertise was and is how to run a restaurant, not necessarily how to run a production kitchen. And in the beginning, on a small scale, it was a restaurant. We could do a lot of, a lot of non-scalable, uh, time-consuming dishes, I would say, that had a lot of steps in them. And as we grew, we quickly realized that it just wasn't going to work. I mean, it's, it's so funny. Even, even simple things like, like garnishing, you know, you have a dish, let's say, God, this dish that we were doing, it was a seared, oh, it was a tuna, seared tuna niswa salad. And so you're searing tuna, you're hard boiling, he got these really small eggs that were cute. I don't know where he got them. So you're hard boiling those and you're quartering them. Uh, and you're adding that in. You're having uh, grape tomatoes and putting those in. You're sprinkling a little edamame in there. You're putting some salad in there. Ponzu sauce in every container, and probably several other ingredients that I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, but there was a lot of there were a lot of touches for every dish. And so figuring out how to streamline that, how to scale the business where you still have dishes that look great, taste great, they're just as as healthy, but they can be done at scale was really hard. Um, it was hard for all of us. I don't think any of us knew exactly how to do that. And, and those kinds of people, I think, are you know people that run airline kitchens or people that run hotel kitchens um, or banquet halls. You know, catering really. Um, so so yeah, I mean, Mateen did um, an amazing job creating delicious food. And I think that was part of our initial growth. But, you know, we all we all had trouble um, figuring out how to adjust these dishes so they would scale. What surprised you about building uh, the experience of building Bento and, and of this business? <laughs> I think, I mean, it, it sounds silly to say it, but I think the difficulty of it. So I was prepared for it to be hard. You know, I was, I was kind of mentally ready to go through the rigor of, of a difficult startup, but it was... 10 or 100 times as harder as I thought it was going to be um, in terms of getting the business to work. And then also, you know, uh, uh, mentally, and I talked about this in the podcast too, there's this weird line between, uh, I don't know, insanity and grit. Do you just keep going? Is that grit? Or, or are you just being crazy? Do you give up and, and stop? And I think, you know, you when you read about successes, you typically... Uh, and you look back on them and at their roots, they have typically had really hard times. You know, Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk are the most obvious examples, but 
There are also plenty of people that have hard times but don't make it, and you just don't hear about them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the difficulty of it was super surprising. How much of that do you think was the additional aspect of having to basically build a restaurant and do all this offline stuff versus building a pure software business? Yeah, and I think you're right. I mean, I think that was a lot of it. And we, I mean, and the other thing that I guess was surprising was how quickly we we were able to close some of these seed rounds in the beginning, you know, because of the growth that we had. And yeah, I mean, I guess in a sense it was it was surprising that how quickly we were kind of put in the position to to scale a business that we didn't quite understand how to scale yet. And and yeah, I definitely think, I mean, that was, it's not just software, so it doesn't scale like software. And there's a lot of expertise there in scaling this kind of thing in industrial engineering that, you know, we just didn't have. For example, like, how do you arrange a workspace? How do you arrange a kitchen like this in such a way that you're minimizing movements by all the people, you know, that can that can shave off one minute, two minutes here and there, add it up over the course of a whole day, shaves off a lot of time, adds a lot of efficiency. Um, and that was the kind of stuff that we just weren't weren't prepared, you know, in how to how to handle that kind of stuff. One challenge for a lot of entrepreneurs is with raising money, and you mentioned that it was relatively easy for you. How did you find your investors and how is raising money for a food delivery startup different today than it was back then? I don't want to say I don't want to give the impression that it was that it was easy either. Um, I think we you know we were lucky enough to be to have gone through uh, Jason Calacanis's incubator, and you know, he I think he played a huge role in our ability to close those initial rounds. But you know, but again, that was also because of this growth that we had, this tremendous growth that we had in the beginning. Define that for me, actually. Uh, what What is sort of a level of tremendous growth that would attract investors to invest in something like this? I th- yeah, I mean, the exact numbers I'm, I'm kind of fuzzy on at this point. I, th- I think it was something like 30% week over week new users, uh, volume, volume growth. But you know, that, that came, you know, Jason and I would, would go to, we would go to our, our kitchen. So this is when we were just doing dinner. So we would leave the office. Yeah, I guess let me back up and say, I don't want to give the impression that, that, that it was easy to get to the point that we were able to raise that money. So my days were, were really long. Um, I would wake up at around, you know, nine and then I would coordinate with, in the beginning, I would talk to our uh, iOS developer who was then in, in China. And kind of touch base with him, and we would talk until about ten in the morning when he would go to bed, and then I would work, obviously all through the rest of the day, go home and have dinner around six or seven when he would kind of then be getting online, and then we would sync and, and work together until like one or two or three in the morning sometimes, and I would go to bed and we would do it again. Now that was in the very beginning, and then running, you know, so then 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 there's the kitchen. So the kitchen and the office were two separate locations because there wasn't space in our original kitchen for Jason and I to be there. So we would leave our office, our little office in the mission, I think around 3.30, and we would get to the kitchen at 4 and start preparing to open the restaurant for deliveries around, you know, by about 5. And then Jason and I would, would run uh, dispatch because I hadn't coded any kind of automated uh, dispatch at that point. So I, we, you know, we would stay until, well, I would stay until nine, nine or so, and he would pick up the slack um, and stay until we closed, which was usually around 10. At that point, we didn't have anyone else, so then there were closing procedures. You have to like wash all these shelves and wash these bags and 
put food away and, and, you know, there's this big closing procedure. So by the time you're out of there, it's like 11. And that was, that was super difficult in the beginning, but, you know, we, we pushed through it. And, and then after we closed, I think the next big seed round, we were able to hire someone to help us with that to actually run that, those, those kinds of operations. And like I was saying, the growth part, like how you scale this kind of business, I think one of the hardest things was trying to figure out who do you hire? Who do you hire to figure this out? Like what kind of person is going to help us scale this kind of business? Is it a production chef? You know, someone who ran an airline food operation? Or is it an industrial engineer who's going to help us arrange the workspaces and minimize movements? You know, and Jason, I just, you don't, you don't know. I mean, I don't have the answer to that. And it's a huge decision because it's not like we had raised, you know, $10 million to hire. Let's just hire both of them, right? I mean, these are, these are big decisions with people who have real lives that need to get paid a real salary. When you hire someone like that, it's a big draw on these limited resources that we have. Uh, we, we raised money, but it, you know, it wasn't. That's yeah. interesting. I mean, because, you know, coming from a engineering background, you might have better clarity on how to hire an engineer, for instance. Um, or on the business side, like how to hire sales. Um, but if you're opening a restaurant, it's very difficult to determine, do we need a you know kitchen manager? Do we need uh, someone that will be on the line? Or do you need somebody that's going to be more of a front-end person? And then you have to worry about logistics of deliveries and some things like that. So that's definitely a great insight for people who want to branch out into non-technical businesses. Yeah. So having been on the other side now, what is your outlook for the admittedly crowded food delivery market? Obviously, Spoon Rocket closed, which was disappointing to, to see, to read that news. You know, it's, it's hard to say. I think if anyone can, can really figure out the economics of on-demand, I think it's going to be Sprig. Um, they have, I think, the most resources out of, out of anyone in the space. You know, and as time is going to tell to see, to see whether or not they're able to make profit on the unit supposedly well I, I guess I you know supposedly Spoon Rocket had figured that out as well according to some of the articles that came out when they closed but they just didn't have enough volume to support you know on the on those you know they didn't have enough units kind of like you're only making a penny or something right it's, it's just you need a lot of volume to support any kind of corporate overhead as well so I it's a, it's a tough model on demand especially with anything perishable so with food is really tough because you have to you have to make a product ahead of time that you don't know whether or not it's going to sell and normally that works fine that's basically what car industries have done for a long time you produce something and you hope you sell it but it doesn't spoil um, and so the problem with food is you have an additional cost of not only delivery but waste and everyone kind of thought oh it's the restaurant without the, the overhead of a restaurant well like sort of but I mean not exactly not at all actually if you have 800 customers coming to Chipotle They've just come to you and you have zero waste. So you have no delivery and you have no food waste on those customers. If you service 800 customers with on-demand, you've paid 800, you've paid a driver, you know, drivers 800 times to deliver that food and you have some percentage of, of food waste that you weren't able to sell that then gets taken directly off your bottom line. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's hard. It's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that for a normal restaurant, you know, you have the overhead of like rent and uh, service staff and, and that sort of thing. But, you know, with this sort of model, you offset that with, I think, probably the delivery aspect of that. Moving food, a perishable item all over a metro area can be very expensive. Yeah, especially, um, I think on demand it can be. I think, I think the models that work are order ahead. Um, I don't know, for example, I don't know Montreal's finances, but 
when I, we had started to model this out and move to the order ahead model, it worked really well um, when, when we when we kind of forecasted it and modeled out the economics of that. Um, if you hit the right density, what advice do you have for somebody that wants to do this, or or even to open up their own restaurant? Yeah, I mean, I think you want to really really look at the cost of the food and make sure that your food costs are under control. You want to be you know, your food costs want to be no more 25, no more than 30% of the total cost of the dish. Uh, and that's, that's just for, that's just for a restaurant. Um, if you, if you're going to do any kind of, you know, tech behind it, I think you really want to look at, at the business model and make sure that you are making money on every unit uh, that you sell or that there's a clear path to it, um, that it's not asymptotic, you know, that it's not a limit. You're never going to approach that, uh, the, the, the profitability point. Do you have any plans for another startup in the future? Maybe. I, I think, yeah, I mean, it was a really, really good experience. What would you do differently? I, th- I think I would have, I would try to have a pretty clear, if, if it were this, if it were this type of bits to atoms kind of business, I would make sure that, that I have a clear path, a clear, you know, mathematical path to, to profitability on the unit, uh, in that business. And if the math says no, then it's not something that, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go into. I think, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Even with VC dollars fueling growth, uh, even at a loss. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically, in a sense, that's what's happened to us, right? I mean, it, yeah, I mean, it's, it was still, still an amazing, you know, an amazing experience, but having, knowing what I know now, yeah, I I would say, I would personally want to make sure that there's that, that trajectory to profitability. So how did you feel when you left Bento? Yeah. I mean, I felt like, you know, a, a sense of loss, really. I felt like it was uh, a breakup, I guess, is the best analogy. You know, something you worked really, really hard on. You kind of make the, you, you have the realization that, um, you know, the company is out of money. You can't afford to pay me. It doesn't make sense to stay at this point. And so, I mean, it was, it was amicable, obviously, uh, between Jason and I. And we still, you know, we still keep in touch. I, I went there the other day and, and uh, met our new uh, the new head chef that's going to run our operation, but I mean, it was still sad uh, to you know have have worked so hard on on something. You know, you you make all the cliche sacrifices, weekends and nights. Avoid you know you, you miss out on uh, certain things for the past year and a half, and it doesn't work out. You know, and that's that's that was my choice. That's the risk that I took. But uh, it still it still felt um, like a bummer. You know, you, you got to kind of pick up the pieces and decide, okay, what did I learn from this? What does that tell me about myself? What do I want to work on next? Um, why, you know, going back to the beginning, like, why did I start Bento? And kind of figuring out, okay, you know, look at the positives, right? What did you learn? What did you gain out of that? And then focus on that and move on, move on to the next thing. You know, what can I do with all this knowledge um, that I've gained? The engineering approach, I guess. <laughs> One of the hardest things to do uh, is shutting down or leaving your business. And you'll read a lot that startups don't fail, their founders, they decide to quit. When did you know that was time for you to move on? I I, I remember thinking about it, having the thoughts for for a couple of weeks. So, you know, so we reached the point where we had run out of money and there was obviously no additional funding coming in. We we busted our butts to get uh, this order ahead model done and it was running just... No, I don't know. We couldn't, I guess we couldn't hit the right volume. It didn't look good enough on paper yet. And that was kind of the, the, the last, that was what we had banked on. Like, okay, we'll do this big push all through January. 
you know, working extra hours and everything to get this order ahead scheduling model done. Got it done. We rolled it out in February. The results were really underwhelming uh, at first, which makes sense. I mean, you, you need you need time to grow. To grow a real a real valuable business needs a lot of time to grow, and and be put together properly. And it was so. And it was right around you know March or so where Jason and I said, you know, we have to make decisions on. We're either going to run out of money here and have to close the business in a very uh, uncomfortable way, or we're going to have to make really hard choices. And so we. Had to make really hard choices um, when we laid off the kitchen staff, and then my engineering staff obviously had to make the choice to to move on and find other jobs um, because no one can afford to obviously live in San Francisco on zero rent right. <laughs> for for any extended amount of time. I think that was the thing that hit me really hard. I I'd kind of just gotten so I had four engineers and a fantastic QA team, which I'll plug. Global app testing, fantastic in the UK and. It just gotten all this stuff kind of running really well. Everyone knew how to work. We had, you know, really, really succinct sprints. Everything was, was running really well. I, I kind of figured out how to be a good, a good manager and, and keep these other human beings happy. Um, you know, and then that all went away. So the reason I'm saying all this is that all went away. We had to lay off the, you know, my, my engineering team we had that I had spent so long building. Uh, it's so difficult to hire an SF. And closed down QA, and you know, for me, it was kind of like okay. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe things will turn around. Maybe something will come of, of funding. We can quickly hire these people back. But you know, that didn't really happen. And then uh, there was nothing kind of in the funnel that indicated that this was going to turn around. Uh, and so I, you know, talked to Jason. You know, order ahead was was. I don't think we had turned it off at that point. It was still on, but it was the growth was so small. You know, and I talked to Jason and, and said, uh, you know, I think, I think for me, I, I, it's 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 time for me to just take a step back and um, try to figure out what's next. I mean, realistically, you're also paying me, and I don't think it makes sense for me to draw this. Uh, well, actually, no, I had taken I was taking no salary um, at that point, but we were we were looking at these numbers of what does it take, you know, what volume would we need in catering, what kind of volume would we need to sustain our our salaries, and I even said, I don't know what kind of sense it makes for me to stay if, if this is mostly a catering business. You know, you can run that with spreadsheets for right now, anyway. And and now it's also it's a very different kind of business than, than what I originally started uh, doing. Um, and, I, and I think it was all of those. I don't think it was any one thing. It was all of those things added up that that kind of made me say, I think I think this is the right the right decision to. Yeah, that's a obviously a hard choice not a fun choice to make but yeah <laughs> what do you think will happen to the business i have incredible respect and, and faith in jason he is relentless in a way i thought i was he is probably 10 times as much as i am it's it's turning up a net profit you know it's, it's it's small but i mean it's doing well so i think he's figuring out and we'll figure out how to how to keep it running it's a really interesting question like what what will happen what's the future uh, of Bento, and you know, I don't know. Uh, I think right now it's very myopic. You know, he's he's focused on keeping the volume up, keeping costs under control to keep the business running. So we're not, you know, because if it doesn't lose money every month, it can run indefinitely. Now it's a matter of of building it so that you know he can he can draw a real salary, a decent salary. You know, I think it could be. I think the pod model is super cool. I think that you could, if you get this working in in, in the right way, you could take it and stamp it out. 
uh, into into other uh, into other cities uh, and be a, a major potentially like white label supplier of food. So uh, I don't know if I'm, if I'm allowed to say, but we who, who we do it with, but we do a lot of high volume catering with various companies. And you know you could you could take that model to other cities, um, who the city you know where, where someone else has the customers and the demand, and the system built up to determine customer preferences in a in a big office park or something, and we're the ones producing that food. So I could see it. I could see something like that. Yeah. So I'd like to wrap up with some fun questions that I think give listeners a introspective of who you are outside of your experience with Bento. I'm going to ask you a question, and the first thing that comes to mind, it'd be great to get your thought on that. So first of all, I'd love to know what your first business was. When I was a kid, I used to fix computers. Uh, and I had a little side business of uh, fixing people's computers. And so sometimes I would go to their house and I could fix it at their house. Or what I would do a lot of the times was bring it back home, fix it, and then deliver it back to them uh, all cleaned and, and fixed. Yeah. What kinds of things do you collect, if anything, and why? I don't think I, I do anything like collecting, you know, stamps or coins. I do really enjoy ham radio and electronics. So when I have an opportunity to buy uh, fun new toys like that, I, I usually I usually take take up the opportunity. Uh, you must be huge on Kickstarter. <laughs> uh, no, I mean a lot of that stuff. I I, I, I wait. I wait. I like to see how it plays out, and then maybe I'll I'll buy it later. What's something that nobody knows about you? I don't know if nobody knows this, but probably very few people know that I am fairly fluent in sign language. And that goes back to RIT and the the big deaf culture that was there that I was a part of. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? Let's see. I don't I don't think I ever had anything super specific. I think once I discovered computers. I, I remember my dad brought home, uh, it was like an old, I don't remember the model, an old an old IBM DOS system. And that was the first computer that I was able to play with. And then after that, we actually had a web TV, if you, if you remember those. And I started making little websites on that. And then I had just at some point probably decided I wanted to, you know, quote unquote, make websites as a living when I was a little kid. And this is sort of where it's all ended up. Which uh, startups, founders, or investors do you admire? Jeff Bezos is um, is a super interesting guy, and I know they uh, Amazon has has you know he has has worked hard to get Amazon to where it is, uh, and the same thing with Elon Musk. Those are the the two guys that come to mind. I know he worked incredibly hard to to get SpaceX and Tesla up and running and, and get both of those companies through some some really hard times. Um, and the the background of of Elon uh, himself is really interesting. I really admire those guys. Someone once told me I, I had a, I guess you would call it a bromance with Elon Musk, but really I would call it a, a, a bro crush. I think that's the proper term. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, what's a useless fact about yourself that uh, you'd like to share? Uh, although, you know, you've already said that you're fluent in sign language, but I, I'd say that that's actually pretty useful. I could count to 10 in Japanese. I once base jumps off of the stratosphere in Las Vegas. That is an actual ride that you can do. That was pretty cool. Thank you so much for your time today, Vincent. We wish you all the best in the rest of your journey. Cool. Thanks a lot, Joe. This has been the inaugural episode of the Venture Forth podcast with Vincent Cardillo. Mm-hmm.